What's up, Doxa? Good morning to you. My name is Ronnie. I am one of the pastors here, and I lead our college ministry called The Salt Company. We're continuing in Genesis this morning, so why don't you grab your Bibles and go to Genesis chapter 4. Okay, we're in this series through Genesis. We've gotten to the part of the story where we are in chapter 4, and I want to preface what I'm about to say next by first saying this. I am all in with the Lion King. I'm all in. I love it. Love the, the plot, the animals, the music, the songs. When I was a, a kid, my parents did the thing where they got like me and my brother, he's a couple years younger together as just like elementary age, and they dressed us up in Lion King overalls, okay, with just like a giant like Simba on you. So we're both in matching Lion King overalls, mushroom haircuts, and then a bunch of like Lion King stuffed animals. And so if you go to my, my parents' house, somewhere in like a bin somewhere, you'll see this like picture of us. So we were, you know, we were pretty into it. And now I've got my own kids, okay? My oldest, Jackson, he's three and a half. And during like the stay-at-home order back in probably April or something, I remember we were down in the basement doing whatever he was doing, just like locked down in your house. And we were watching The Lion King for the first time. And he's getting at the age where he's able to start asking questions about what some of this stuff means. And, you know, this, this song came up. And I, for the first time in my life, I, I paid attention to the words and I noticed something. And it's this song, The Circle of Life. You guys know The Circle of Life? Azibenya. Like the drums go down and everything. Is that, that song, that amazing? It's, ama- it's amazing. It's awesome. Um, here's the thing I noticed. I noticed that this celebratory song, this amazing song, this triumphant song is actually a song that is normalizing death, celebrating death. That's what like Rafiki is doing is he's, he's trying to help young Simba and all these animals like understand like, but yeah, like this is, this is the circle of life. This is the way it works. And death is just a, a normal part of the story. It's actually a good thing. And if you've been tracking with us in Genesis, you've seen in, in chapters one and two of the Bible that the, the true story of the world, that this is actually not a song that God ever meant for us to sing. Not a story that we were supposed to be part of. If you kind of look back in, in Genesis three towards the end, we see that God actually says, hey, the ground is now cursed because of you, because of your sin. And he says, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Talking to Adam and Eve. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. He says, you're made from the dust, but because of your sin, you're gonna return to the dust. This is the circle of life, but the note here that God is striking is not a note of celebration, but curse. We were created from the dust, but we were never meant to return to the dust. And so we see in verse 20 of chapter 3, it says, The man called his wife's name Eve, and because she was the mother of all the living, and the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins. So he had to kill an animal in order to clothe them. Blood had to be shed, the circle of life. This is the new normal for humanity, but it's not a good normal. And then in verse 22, he says, The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And so we see in Genesis 1 and 2 that actually life was not meant to be circular. It was meant to be linear. Our lives were not meant to end in death, but actually increase forever, eternally. We weren't meant to return to the dust we were made from, but to actually 
ascend in glory, reach out to the tree of life, and live forever. But this is the curse that sin, our sin, has brought into the world. And the next part of the story in Genesis that we're going to get into today, chapter 4 and 5, and then as we get into chapter 6 next week, it's going to show us this downward spiral from glory that humanity is on and how we basically took the whole world down with us in our sin. And when you stack Genesis 4 and 5 up with chapters 1 and 2, it should actually shock us out of our complacency towards death and our comfortability with our sin. And so let me just ask you that at the outset here. What, what's your attitude towards the sin in your life right now? How does your heart feel about it? I was thinking about this the other day, and I was at the, the gym on this machine called the Jacob's Ladder. And so, like, so you're like in this curled position. You're crawling up this ladder. It's literally designed to make you like have a cardiovascular increase and like breathe heavy and like you, it's like wor- horrible position for breathing, great position for like getting a burn in your legs, you know. But I've got this mask on and I'm literally just like breathing in my mask and I'm trying to hide myself and like maybe sneak like my nostrils out so I can breathe as I'm going. I'm just thinking like these are the, the lengths that I'm willing to take to protect myself and others from the coronavirus. But is there anything like that in my life to protect myself and others from sin? What's my attitude towards sin right now? Am I watchful of it? Am I aware of it? There's a theologian back in the 16th century named John Owen who famously, he told us, here's what our attitude towards sin should be. He said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Sin is serious. Owen says we're all being hunted by it. And that's what this text is ultimately about today, it's a call to all of us to take the sin in our lives more seriously, to kill it before it kills us. So let's jump in and start reading how the story unfolds. Chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel, and now Abel, he was a keeper of sheep, and Cain, he was a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain, he brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. So we see after the fall into sin, that humanity, they've they've tried to, to move on with life. Adam and Eve, they actually carry out their calling from God to be fruitful and multiply. They've got two little boys, Cain and Abel. Eve even praises God for it. So we see that even though it's severed, they're still in this relationship with God, he's still in the picture somehow. We see that Cain and Abel, they don't stay you know, at home in their mom's basement, but they actually grow up and go out in the world and they get jobs. We see that uh, Abel, he's a keeper of the sheep. Cain, he's a worker of the ground. And it even says that they start to worship God. It says they bring an offering from their work to God. This wouldn't be something that God didn't say like they had to do this. This was a, a natural impulse of people that knew that their life was forever indebted to God. They were created by him. Everything, all the strength that they had to do the work and the the results of the work, their, their crops, their sheep, was from God himself. And so they were offering it back to him as an offering, just willingly. It was an act of worship. And so we've got this happy family, and, and they even go to church, right? It almost seems perfect 
but we only get a few verses in before we start to see that there are some warning signs popping up, that everything is not perfect beneath the surface. Look at verse 5. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. And so Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Okay. So the text doesn't exactly say specifically why God favored Abel or over Cain, but we can kind of see that there might have been something different in what their offering was. It says that Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, which is great, but then Abel, he brought like the firstborn of his flock and their fat portion. So the firstborn versus just like some of the fruit. And so there was, there was something as they both brought an offering from their work, it appears that maybe Cain was kind of holding something back a little bit. They both brought an offering and maybe I, our eyes couldn't tell, but God knew that beneath the surface in their heart that Cain was, was holding something back, possibly. And, and the offering that they give, it reveals what they really trust in life. Think of it as like their money and their possessions. They're bringing this before God, their wealth. The very things that they would need to provide for themselves, they're offering it back to God and essentially saying, God, like this is yours anyways and I trust you. And so it appears that even though Cain brought something, he didn't, he, there's like this lack of trust potentially in his heart and God, he sees it. He sees the heart behind the actions. It doesn't say that he only had like, no regard for the offering, but for Cain. It says the Lord had regard for Abel, and for Cain he had no regard. So he's seeing into the heart, and this gets revealed to us when just a, like a couple words later, it says that Cain, he like, kind of shows it on his face, what was already there in his heart, this anger pops out. It says he was very angry, and his face fell. And so right off the bat, here's what should scare us. Even our best acts, even our acts that are religious, can be tainted and corrupted by sin. Our motives can be corrupt. Sin can be lurking in our hearts. And God, he sees it all, even if we can't see it in each other. Verse 4 says, The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. And so Cain, he was very angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So this flash of anger in Cain's face, it's no small thing. God actually looks at it and he says, like, sin, this is sin peeking its head out. Like the tip of an iceberg. Right? Like you just see this little flash of anger, this look on his face, this, this offering, and God sees beneath the surface that there's something much bigger. And we all experience this, right? We're, we're walking around, living our lives, saying things like, like during this election season, all of us have been in some kind of a conversation where we've heard someone say or we've said, like, I can't believe that they voted for that person. And on one level, it's like just a political comment. But on a deeper level, a lot of the time, isn't there a mountain of pride, contempt, disdain, even violence toward the other person that we're talking to beneath the surface? But the picture that God gives in this, in this passage of sin is not actually an iceberg, but an animal, a predator. He says, sin is crouching at your door in its desire is for you. Think like a tiger or like a lion crouching at 
the door, craving to devour you, hunting you down. In the New Testament, Peter, he takes this a step further and he says, your adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Like a roaring lion, sin is crouching at your door. So when you wake up in the morning and you, you pull out your phone to check it, sin is crouching behind the screen, ready to deceive you, seduce you, distract you, discourage you. When you leave the house and you go to that work meeting and you're sitting in the boardroom, sin, it's prowling around the room, inviting you to talk trash about your coworkers that aren't in there so that you can move up ahead or maybe just exaggerate or tell just a, a seemingly innocent lie. When you lay at bed, in bed at night with your spouse, sin is waiting there for you before you go in the room, crouching at the door, plotting against your marriage, your family. When you get home from a long day at work and you plop down on the couch with your roommates, sin is sitting there with you guys, influencing you, steering the conversation, crouching, plotting against you. So I wonder if you guys remember the, uh, in the movie Jurassic Park, which all in on The Lion King, also very much all in on Jurassic Park. So I'm excited about just the age that my, my kids are in. Um, there was the, the main guy, like the inventor of all this guy named John Hammond, right? He like finds that he can like extract DNA from the mosquito that was caught in the tree sap or whatever it is. And he like creates dinosaurs out of this, right? And he creates this theme park of dinosaurs on this island. And it's like this amazing dream that people would be able to come and see the dinosaurs and go on rides and drive around in cars and buy t-shirts and like see these amazing animals brought back to life from the past. And, it, and it's awesome. And you get excited about it. And he brings all these people there on the island, these like professionals to just kind of test it out and see. And then not to give you too much of a spoiler alert, but it doesn't quite work. <laughs> like the, the, the dinosaurs aren't quite able to be contained to say the least. And at the end of the movie, there's this epic scene where John Hammond is just standing in like what once was this awesome um, museum meets, meets cafeteria with a giant dinosaur bone thing behind him. And there's literally like a Tyrannosaurus Rex tearing apart the building, eating all of his, his staff and workers. There's velociraptors running around like chasing his grandchildren. He's just kind of standing there bewildered. Like he can't believe that this would have happened. And all along in the movie, you have people telling him, like, like John, this isn't going to work. There's this whole guy whose his whole thing is like uh, chaos theory. Like, you're, we've literally unleashed chaos. This isn't going to work. And we're all sitting there watching the movie, too, saying, John, what were you thinking? What were you thinking, John? Like, as everything is falling down around him, dinosaurs aren't pets. They're predators. But aren't we just like him when we're not watchful over the sin in our lives. The sin that's crouching at the door, we treat it like a pet that we can control rather than a predator that wants to kill us. I think one of the most seemingly innocent ones we do this with is the sin of, of gossip, cutting people down, telling lies about them behind their back. We, we get together with our friends and it's almost like it's this cute little cat. We just, it's, just, it's better to like have there with us because we can just kind of pet it and it just makes the conversation better, makes us feel better about ourselves. This cute little 
cat, pet, called gossip. The Bible is clear, it's a roaring lion. Wants to devour us and people through us. And so we see that sin, it's, it's hunting us down. And in some ways, it's being talked about as outside of us, but also in this text, we see it's inside of us. It's in our will. It's in our own very desires being corrupted and co-opted and just confused and crisscrossed because of sin. In verse 7, as God is talking to Cain, he says, Cain, if you do well, you have this desire in you to do well, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. God's pointing out just the mixed motives that all of us have underneath the surface. Cain brought an offering to God, but somewhere mixed up in that offering under the surface, in his desire to please God, he also wanted to please himself. Is anyone else besides me all alone up here on the stage like this? William G.T. Shedd, an old theologian, he puts sin in this definition, he says, sin is the suicidal action of the will against itself. And so God's warning of sin is if we don't kill sin, it will kill us. Verse 7, he says to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. He warns Cain, Cain, you must rule over it or it's going to rule over you. Don't control it, kill it. And he warns us here this morning, he asks us the same question, what sin is crouching at your door today? Anger, bitterness, jealousy, selfishness, laziness. Lust, greed. And if you're like me, you're like, oh yeah, that's just like words and, and principles. I've got it under control. There's like some small things in my life that could never grow into anything that bad. It could never be like this. But that is like the exact progression of like exact, exactly how sin works. It's exactly how it works. There's always a thought in a conversation like that when it's small. James in the New Testament, he says, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed away by his own desire, and then desire, when it's conceived, it gives birth to sin, and then sin, when it's fully grown, it brings forth death. This is what happens 100% of the time when we don't kill it. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And so we need to to take a step back and just ask, like, what are, we, what are we learning here? Well, a couple things. First, we need to be watchful over our sin. We need to be watchful over these, these things that are bubbling up to the surface. A lot of times it's in emotion. For Cain, it was anger. It's, a, it's a, a, literally a, a physical bodily like expression on his face. And God asks him, why has your face fallen? Cain, why are you angry? A lot of times on my ride home from work, I've got about a 10-minute car ride, and actually I'm trying to use that time for just some, some reflection on my day with God, and I'm looking at God like, show me my sin. God, I felt irritated, I felt frustrated, I felt sad in that meeting or with that person or whatever, and like, God, is there, where, like, where was that leading to? Where is that going? I'm trying to be watchful 
over these things that are bubbling up to the surface in my life. But once we're watchful, we need to actually listen to God when he warns us, right? When we hear the voice of God, and we all know what this is like in some way, we all know what it's like for God to speak to us in a moment of temptation and give us a way out. Whether, whether it's through a person that's talking to you, whether you're actually like literally reading your Bible or you just like remember something from a sermon or a verse that comes to mind, or it's just your conscience. We hear God's voice speaking to us saying, you must rule over it. Don't coddle it, kill it. Kill your small sin. But Cain didn't listen to God's warning. And we can't tell how much time passes between the warning in verse seven and then the events of verse eight, but Cain, he doesn't listen. He continues to let his sin grow, which is what happens 100% of the time when we don't kill it, until eventually he's overtaken by his anger, his jealousy of his brother. And we can just picture Cain working in the field, murdering Abel in his head for years before he actually does it with his hands. Verse eight says, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. When sin grows, it brings forth death. The sin that was crouching at the door of Cain's heart has now ruled over him. And as he overtakes Abel, comes from behind his back, we see that Cain has himself become a living picture of his own sin. If we don't kill our sin, it will kill us or, and or it will make killers out of us. And this is one of the saddest verses in the Bible. I have two little boys myself with sin in their hearts. And I have no reason to think that this wouldn't be their story, that it won't be their story, unless they kill their sin. I have no reason to believe that. And and again, I know most of us think, okay, I get it, we're reading the Bible, like it could never come to this though. This story feels so distant from us. I've never killed anyone, I'm never going to kill anyone, I could never do that. But let me ask you a question. What makes you so sure of that? What makes you so sure? Everyone who ever killed somebody had a point in their life where they thought they would never do that. Everyone does. They thought the same thing at some point. So what makes you so sure that your anger is not going to grow over time and turn into some form of violence, whether whether verbal or physical? What makes you think that that small seed of lust is not going to grow into a full-blown affair? What makes you think that your temptation to greed is not going to conceive and grow into something like stealing and theft and just a loss of your integrity in the workplace? You know, why, why are we so quick when we read this to think like that this won't be us. What advantage do we actually have over Cain sitting here in this room? Who were his parents? Adam and Eve. So on one hand, they're like the closest people to to God, the first of the creation. They literally walked with him. And then on the other hand, they saw 
the devastation of their sin unfolding in the world. Like they, they had such an awareness of God, such an awareness of sin, and they raised him and they taught him and he would have known these things. What makes us think that we got a better shot than he did to not let sin grow like that in our lives? I heard a godly pastor named Crawford Loritz one time, just in the middle of his sermon, just stop and he says, you know, when I look in my heart, it scares me. It scares me when I look in there. But I think that's the concern that I have for myself and for us is that we're not scared enough by what we see in our hearts. And maybe we're not scared because we actually don't see it at all because it's hiding and it's hunting or we see it like a pet and not a predator that is hunting us down. And in the end, you can choose to not take your sin seriously, but that doesn't change the fact that God does. In verse nine, he says to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? Cain says, I do not know him. I'm my brother's keeper. And the Lord says, what have you done? God comes to Cain and says, where is Abel? What have you done? Cain tries to hide his sin. He tries to deflect the conversation, reject responsibility, but God won't have it. We might have come to accept that sin and death is just a part of the story, but God has not. And what God says next is his word, not just to Cain, but to all of us who have sinned. Verse 10 says, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Says, Cain, look at the ground around you. Look at your hands. The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me, Cain. He says, I will not, I cannot ignore your sin. I will not normalize and accept death. His blood is crying out to me from the ground. God does not see Abel's death as part of the circle of life, but as a departure from life and what it was meant to be. The blood of human beings was never meant to be spilled on the ground. We can think of just the millions of acts of violence that have happened and continue to happen in our world. God has heard every cry, every baby, every child, every man, every woman, everyone. God has seen and God has heard. And when God hears the cries and when he sees the blood, he looks at us. And he says, what have you done? And I wonder if part of the reason that we don't take sin seriously is because we cannot bear the weight of that question from God. What have you done? We can't bear to look at the blood on our hands so we look away. We can't bear to listen to the cries and if you're hearing me right now and saying like what blood and what cries for you in your life, you're only proving my point. You can't bear to bring it to mind. You've buried it, you've downplayed it or your sin is hiding so deep that you can't see it. Because if we took sin more seriously, we would be crushed under the guilt and that is too much to bear. This is what Cain does. He, he can't face God 
with the blood on his hands. He tries to deflect responsibility and move away from God and move on with his life. Look at verse 10. The Lord says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, Cain, which has opened up its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. But then Cain, he went away from the presence of the Lord, and he settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. He buries his sin. He doesn't deal with it. He doesn't seek forgiveness. He doesn't repent. He just accepts it as his place in the circle of death. He says, hey, someone else will probably just come along and kill me. And this is right where sin wants us. Away from God. All alone. On our own. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a pastor in Germany in the 1940s, and he says this about sin's intentions for your life. It says, he who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. And in the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person alone. And I know that that's exactly where some of you are right now. And this is Cain, right? The future of humanity. There's only him left, right? Abel's dead, has just distanced himself from further and further from God. He's actually settled for this life of death. And this is the beginning of the story of how we got to where we are today, right? The first human death, the murder of Abel, becomes just part of the circle of life and life goes on. But as the story goes on, we see that we actually can't really just bury our sin. We actually have to bring it with us into everything else that we build in life. Look at verse 17. It says, Cain, he, he knew his wife, and she conceived, and she bore Enoch. And when he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahuhel, and Mahujahel fathered Methushel, and Methushel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. Now, if you were listening to the, our sermons on marriage, is that sin or is that good? Two wives, sin. The name of the one was Ada, and the other was Zillah, and Ada bore Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock, and you know, that would have been Abel if he wouldn't have died. And his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who lay the lyre and the pipe. And Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Namah. And this is what Lamech said to his wives. Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. And if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. 
So we read just kind of the descendants of Cain, and we see that life goes on in a way. Cain, he finds a wife, he has kids. His kids seem to be talented. They start advancing human civilization. They build cities and societies and technology and music, and you can almost forget that way back in the family tree was a horrific murder. But Lamech didn't forget. He actually writes a song about his proud lineage, and he boasts that he's actually outdone his ancestor Cain in sinning. And this is exactly what sin wants to do. It wants to become normalized, even celebrated, so it can stay hidden and so it can hunt. It wants to be just part of the circle of life. And when we read the beginning chapters of Genesis in contrast to the first couple chapters, it's meant to shock our system, to wake us up from our complacency towards sin and death. We see the contrast between the creation with Lord, the Lord blessing the ground and now the ground becoming like this hungry monster wanting to devour the blood of humanity. We see that man was supposed to bring blessing to the world but now brings curse. We see Cain becoming an animal, a fugitive, and a wanderer. And sometimes this is the way that sin kills. It's just this slow and subtle settling in to a life that is not really life. This is what we've settled into. It's just the way it is. We've all had to become comfortable because the blood on our hands, we can't get rid of the stain. We look at the ground around us and it's stained and we can't wash it away, so we just do our best to move on and build a new life. And this was Cain. But it's interesting to notice, if you look back to Cain's conversation with God... We see that Cain, he, he runs away from God because he thinks he has to. He says, the weight is too much for me to bear. He just can't bear it. But God never told him to run away. God tells him about his sin. He tells him about the curse. And then Cain, just in his guilt, he runs away from God. It's like he's so blinded by the blood on his hands, the blood on the ground, that he can't bear to look at God anymore. And he just runs away. But the thing that Cain didn't see is that God didn't want him to leave. God was still standing there. His guilt had blinded him to the fact that God had not left him. And there were some at the same time as Cain that they, they did see past the blood on their hands and the blood on the ground to the God who was still standing there in the mess. Look at verse 25 as the story continues. It says that Adam, so this is Adam and Eve, he knew his wife again and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said that God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. And to Seth also a son was born, and they called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. And so we see a different trajectory happening here. Rather than running away from God, we have some people running to him. And then we get to chapter 5, which is a long chapter, and it's a genealogy of just all the descendants of humanity up until the time of Noah. And I'm going to kind of breeze through it. And I just want you to notice the cadence of just the, the circle of life, this cycle of death. And don't get freaked out by how old the people are living. The thing that could shock us is that they're dying at all. Because they weren't meant to die. It says this in, in chapter 5. I'll just kind of skip through it. In verse 6, we've got this guy named Seth. He lives 912 years and then he died. Verse 11, we've got Enosh, 905 years, he died. Verse 14, thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. 
Verse 17, thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. Then we got Jared. He lives to be 962, and then he dies. And then there's this guy, Enoch. Verse 21, when Enoch lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God. And after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters, thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Then it goes on, we got this guy Methuselah, lives 969 years, and he died. Then we have Lamech, he fathers Noah, who lives 595 years, 777 years, and he died. And so what we have in chapter five is in the middle of this story of death, we see this one strange guy named Enoch that kind of breaks the mold, right? We don't know a ton about him, but his story stands out. It says that he walked with God. It doesn't say like he went on a walk with God. It says that his life was characterized by walking with God, which would have meant intimacy and companionship while he had blood on his hands. And not only that, but he seems to have walked with God in such a way that he walks straight out of the story of death and just never dies. It says he was not. Okay, so we see this contrast between Cain and Enoch. We have Cain who runs away from God, but we have Enoch who walks with God. Both are guilty of sin, but both have two radically different responses to God, two radically different outcomes of life, death and life. What makes the difference? If you look at Eve and Adam's response, we see what it was, okay? So look at Adam and Eve back in verse 25. And you can just imagine that if Cain felt guilty for the blood on his hands, how do you think his parents felt? I mean, they were the ones that started this whole thing. They look at Cain murdering their brother and they remember that this was the sin that they brought into the human story. The blood was on their hands too. They would have felt extremely guilty. But it says Adam, he he knew his wife Again, they got up again and they followed God again and she bore a son and called his name Seth and then she looks to the God who is still there and says, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Somehow, even though there was blood all around them, they didn't, like through the mess, they saw that God was still standing there. Through their guilt, they looked at God and they saw that he was a God of grace. The burden of their guilt, the hopelessness of it actually drove them to call on the name of the Lord in desperation because they saw that God wanted to give them life when all that they deserved was death. They gave them another offspring. And so we see in Adam and Eve and Enoch and others, they begin to walk with God instead of running away from him. And so at second glance, as we're reading the story, the first thing we need to see is the seriousness of sin. But the only thing in this story that's more serious than the seriousness of sin is the seriousness of God's grace for sinners. And as we know, in the story of the Bible, we see the fullness of grace of God coming fully in the man, Jesus Christ. Jesus shows up thousands of years later in the New Testament, and he basically is like this greater Enoch, the one that Enoch was pointing to. When you look at Eve looking at her new baby, Seth, she says, like, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Fast forward to Luke chapter 3, we get a genealogy of Jesus. We see who his ancestors are. He's a descendant of Enoch and Seth 
and Adam. And like Enoch, when Jesus walked the earth, he walked with God. But unlike Enoch, he walked without any sin, with no blood on his hands. And also, unlike Enoch, he came down from heaven to earth. The book of Hebrews explains that Jesus came because we shared in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things. He became a man. Why? So that through his death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver all those who through the fear of death are subject to a lifelong slavery. He came to break us out of the circle of life, right? Enoch, in this story, he points to what Jesus would one day do. Jesus came to break us out of the cycle of death. He came to give us a way out. Jesus, he kind of, or Enoch dips out of the, the circle of, of life and goes up to heaven all by himself. Jesus, he comes down from heaven and he brings all of us with him. We also see in the New Testament that Jesus is like a better Abel. Just like Abel, his own people turned on him and then ever since Cain killed Abel, sin has just been crouching and hiding and hunting. And at the cross, it looked as though sin had hunted down and defeated Jesus. But Colossians 2 tells us that Jesus was the one doing the hunting that day. It says that at the cross, Jesus, he actually disarmed Satan and put him to open shame by triumphing over him through the cross. The only weapon that Satan has against us is to accuse us of the blood on our hands, the blood on the ground, the guilt that we carry. That is Satan's only weapon against us. And it says in Colossians chapter two that Jesus took that guilt, he took your guilt, he took the blood that is on your hands and he nailed it to his hands on the cross. And he forgave us. And he disarmed Satan. And so we agree with Cain that our punishment is greater than we can bear. When they see Jesus on the cross bearing our guilt, we see him being driven away from the presence of God, and we realize that God is inviting us to not run away, but to draw near. The blood of Jesus is greater than our sin. Later on in Hebrews chapter 12, the author, he looks back at this story in Genesis 4 and 5, and he looks past all of the human stories, all of the blood, and he says something profound. He says, the sprinkled blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel, it proclaims our guilt, right? Burying your sin will not remove the guilt. Building something great with your life will not remove the guilt. Inflicting punishment on yourself like Cain will not remove the guilt. Blocking out the cries of your conscience so you don't have to think about it, it will not remove the guilt. Nothing but the blood of Jesus will remove the stain of sin from your life, will remove the guilt. The sprinkled blood of Jesus, it speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Jesus, it proclaims God's grace. Sprinkled down on us, Jesus, he offers up his life as a gift to us. So for us, there's a pastor named Robert Murray McShane who he, he knew the seriousness of sin, but he also knew the seriousness of God's grace. And therefore he said that for every look at ourself, every look at our sin, every look at the blood on our hands, we need to look 10 times at Christ because his blood speaks a better word. And you know the only difference between someone who lives forever in heaven and someone who dies forever in hell is that they see God's grace 
in the midst of their guilt. They see that God is gracious, willing to forgive, ready to forgive, leaning forward at the edge of his seat, ready to speak a better word over your life with the blood of his son. And when you see that, rather than running away from him, you see that he's still standing there in your mess. You call on the name of the Lord. And like Enoch, you start walking with God. You become a friend of God. And starting in this life, you break out of the circle of death. You get back on the path of eternal life that you were created for. And you walk forever with God into eternity. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would make us aware of our sin, that we would feel the weight of it, the seriousness of it, that we would see the devil's schemes against us, God, that we would be well acquainted with the blood that is on our hands, the blood that's on the ground around us. God, that we wouldn't shove it to the side, we wouldn't just try to move on, we wouldn't try to punish ourselves for it, but that we would feel the weight of it and then we would see and hear the better word of Jesus spoken over our lives. God, this morning, would you speak that better word over our lives? God, nothing can take away our sin except the blood of your son. Nothing can wash us clean from our guilt except for your grace. So God, we don't run from you this morning. We turn to you we worship you. God, we receive the grace from the blood of Jesus.